one of the things we did find in the report, well, it certainly shouldn't be framed as accredited versus unaccredited training. Right. Quite often they're complementary. So we found an example in the meat industry um, where accredited training was used to meet these strict uh, legislation and regulatory requirements, whereas unaccredited training was then used just to reinforce uh, the skills learned in accredited training. Hello and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast of the National Centre for Vocational Education Research, or NCVER for short. I'm Steve Davis and today's topic is accredited training or unaccredited training? That is the question. Our vocational voices today are Simon Walker, Managing Director, NCVER, and Ian White, Research Officer in the National Surveys Branch of NCVER. Welcome both to the podcast. Hello, Steve. Yeah, hi, Steve. Ian, I'm going to start with you because we know that around half of employers in Australia look outside the nationally accredited vocational education training system to uh, provide their employees with training. Do we know why they do that? Well, um, it does vary widely between industries. So the main reasons that the employers gave in the CIV for the use of unaccredited training were uh, to provide skills for the job, to meet and maintain professional industry standards and to meet highly specific training needs and also in response to new technology. Um, reasons that uh, employers might choose unaccredited training over comparable accredited training uh, include the cost, ability to tra- tailor the training to their needs and the flexibility in the timing and provision. One of the things that I saw looking through the research, though, were that when uh, employers do look for unaccredited training, sometimes it's delivered by uh, private training providers, uh, professional industry associations, and their reason is that they have a high level of industry knowledge and their suitability of the course to what the employer needs. Is this a little bit of a warning uh, to those in the accredited vet sector to apply more agility to the way we uh, manage what we're offering in our in our courses to try and meet needs more closely. Yeah, well, certainly I think that is the case. We did find that employers would like to see faster and more agile qualification development, for example, within the vet sector, um, and to, just to respond to those needs of industry. Um, We also found that perceived complexity of the accredited VET system is a barrier to employers using it, Um, increasingly the likelihood of some employers choosing unaccredited training over accredited training. Can you unpack the complexity? Where where does the complexity come into it with the uh, accredited VET system? That's a good question. Uh, First of all, the whole regulatory environment that goes around having an accreditation for a course in the VET system, you need... uh, the, uh, regist- the training organisations themselves have to be registered. Right. There are all sorts of rules in terms of how the training is assessed and uh, conditions for those assessments, all codified in what we call the training package or the qualification. Um, I think a lot of employers like the idea of accredited training but probably see a bit of redundancy in some of the additional requirements there, whereas they want to get something that's short, sharp gets their staff going inside their business for their purposes Mm -hmm. and if they were to go through a full accredited course there's probably a lot of stuff in there that they don't see themselves needing as a business although of course for the individual there may be quite a few benefits by having that. I want to pick up on this regulatory framework aspect because sometimes it's regulation that compels employers to get the training done, but we're saying there's a double-edged sword because within the accredited system, there's a lot of extra layers as far as getting that accreditation is concerned. 
Yeah, I think what's happened, and this is a bit of a trend that's occurred over many years, is a lot of regulation in the past sat outside the accredited training system. So I'll try and give you an example of that. Um, The Australian Maritime Safety Authority, for example, you always had to go and do a course to get qualified to be a a captain of a ship or a, a linesman or something like that. But they tended to bolt on a whole series of other typically safety-oriented requirements that were developed by themselves, so an additional test under their regime, um, which you had to do to get your licence to operate. So they were Mm post-training. Now, over time, we've seen a a bigger convergence of that type of regulatory activity getting absorbed into the training product. So clearly there's an efficiency there for the individuals, um, but it also means that the standards by which that training is uh, delivered is covered by a national and consistent set of standards. So there's some benefits there as well. Benefits, but also some, some might argue, some bloat. Well, in that particular instance I've just given you, of course, it does take out some of the duplication of having to do a training course, oh, yeah. have that assessed on one hand, and then having to go to another body to get that assessed again, all right, through a different regime. So um, I think over time there's been a convergence, particularly in what we call occupational licensing areas. So obviously we'd all like to think that when we're in a plane, the pilot is credentialed, and the person that put the thing together on the ground and maintained the plane was fully qualified under a very rigorous set of standards. I think that's a reasonable thing. If an employer is having uh, unaccredited training for their staff and they're happy with the outcome, is there anything wrong with that, Ian, from your perspective? How, How do we judge what's right or wrong in the broader question? Well, in terms of for the employer, they may, may well be happy with unaccredited training in terms it might be more flexible and more cost effective for them. Um, however, there is implications for the employee. Um, for example, in the transferability of skills to other occupations and industries, um, should they wish to move on from that employer. Um, certainly in the accredited, uh, with an accredited qualification, there is that transferability and portability between industries and occupations, but um, for unaccredited training, that might not necessarily be the case. There are degrees of portability or transferability in some accredited, unaccredited training. So right. absolutely for accredited training, because it's nationally recognised. Mm-hmm. But there are probably some, particularly in the tech sector, and the report that Ian's produced does go to this issue. So there are quite highly recognised credentials in unaccredited training. For instance, a Cisco Academy Certificate of Networking. That's become something of an industry standard. So high recognition of that. And so the individual in that case will actually get some good portability out of it. But then there are other levels which are very firm specific that was designed by the training provider or even in-house specific to a firm which doesn't have any transferability into other firms. Right. In which case the employer wins, but the employee doesn't have much to go on if they decide to leave. Yeah, although I wouldn't say it was wasted on the employee. However, the level of transferability is is a lot lower, obviously. Yeah, Yeah. that's correct. I mean, particularly in the IT industry, uh, the uh, vendors or the suppliers or manufacturers are seen as an expert in their field. So they're seen as the best place to give the training. Mm. And in fact... um, some of them won't allow uh, non-accredited, so not accredited by the supplier, technicians to work on the equipment as it would invalidate the warranty, for example. So right. then the employer is compelled to use them hmm. in unaccredited training. Would it be fair to say 
that whether training being undertaken is accredited or unaccredited, it's better than no training taking place at all. Ah, unequivocally. Yeah, absolutely. This year in particular, we've been talking about lifelong learning Mm. a lot. Why do we focus on this divide between accredited and unaccredited? Is there a reason we care? Well, I'll just go back to your previous point. I'll Mm. give you statistics. So 90% of Australian employers provided some form of training to their employees in the previous 12 months from the last uh, survey of employees and views views of the VET system. That strikes Um, me as a high number. Yeah, it is a high number. They're huge trainers in the the, world. huge trainers of the workforce mm. one of the most important drivers of their uh, need to train employees is the constant need to improve their products and services to compete in this globalized economy so you know employer training is very important to make sure that our firms or australian firms stay competitive absolutely they can coexist i think that's my take out of this and certainly my experience um, prior to coming into this company and working in other organizations there will always be a need unaccredited training the one area that i have a particular experience in and if i can share a little story with you steve is i started my life in the graphic arts industry um, at a time when uh, the processes were semi-manual so this is the process of converting images and artwork into a printing plate what we called lithography right now when i first got in there That was a semi-manual process. And then, of course, this massive event occurred, which was the Apple Macintosh, which digitised all of that work. Now, the people that were working in the old semi-manual areas had to have an apprenticeship, had to go through their trade, get qualified. The moment that happened and that diffused, that extra technology or that technology diffused into the sector in a phenomenally quick time, about a year. Wow. All right? There was no way known the accredited training system could then reconceive of the training program to move into the digital age. It took three or four years before the first of the new accredited products came out. So you were reliant on some form of unaccredited training, sometimes vendors, sometimes, quite frankly, people working amongst themselves because someone got a hold of it and then taught their colleague and so on and so forth. It was very, very informal. So, you know, we talk in that report about three types of training, accredited, unaccredited and informal. And a lot of that transfer of knowledge was probably more informal training. Over time, as that technology diffuses more widely throughout industry and across the country, that gets picked up in the accredited, mm. the accredited course process. Yeah, just following off of Simon's thread there, um, that's absolutely, and that is one of, the thing, one of the things we did find in the report, is that I don't think sometimes it should be framed as, or it certainly shouldn't be framed as, accredited versus unaccredited training. Right. Quite often they're complementary. So we found an example in the meat industry um, where accredited training was used to meet these strict uh, legislation and regulatory requirements, whereas unaccredited training was then used just to reinforce uh, the skills learned in accredited training. Um, and such yeah mm. and also I, if I reflect on my life I, I do a lot of uh, websites in WordPress and my I've all learned on the job all the way through and get by beautifully I've got a thousand of them under my belt however most people learn WordPress that way and you come across sites that have been put together badly <laughs> with lots of security flaws lots of bad decisions made along the way and this is, I think, exactly the point, isn't it? Where we haven't been applying ourselves to that formal uh, accredited process, it leaves it open to patchiness. 
and of course not subject to the regulatory standards yes. and scrutiny that you would have through the accredited mm. training yeah. system. So there are benefits either way, and I think a savvy employer in particular will pick and choose what they see as best fit for their organisation. Which brings up the topic of micro-credentials, uh, because I just got myself a digital badge, they call them, from RMIT for Design Thinking for Innovation. And so this is a form of micro-credential. It was a six-week course, all done online. Um, wasn't cheap, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was a good learning experience. How does that fit into this spectrum of training opportunities out there, the micro-credential? Well, certainly, yeah, they are an interesting development, these little bite-sized pieces of training. Um, Now, currently, they are unaccredited, um, as they're not quality-assured under government-approved standards or accredited by the national regulator, although they may be accredited by whoever's providing them. They are currently meeting industry needs um, and they're currently being considered for inclusion in the AQF. So the AQF is the Australian Qualifications Framework. So that's the overarching framework that sets a whole bunch of criteria about what a qualification is and what the level of skills and knowledge and the application of that skills and knowledge are in the workforce. So it is a sort of another arm to the whole accreditation governance and standards setting in the system. Um, with the micro because it is a full qualification, micro-credentials aren't that. So that's the first thing to say. What is a micro-credential? Yeah. Well, it is something that's less than a qualification. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't meet that criteria. And, of course, the one that you did is a very small, bite-sized piece. Yeah. I think what we're really trying to talk about, though, is the enormous commentary about the lifelong learning and the need for reskilling and upskilling over life, which is growing and accelerating and is projected to accelerate over the next while as technology and the transformation of the workplace occurs. Uh, there again, in my view, will always be a place for unaccredited micro-credentialing. Yep. Um, I think the accredited system is struggling to see how it can incorporate that mm. under the standards. But if you gave my, if I go back to my original example, um, sometimes it is just a question of time before these things diffuse into the accredited training system, right. and that's usually because they become more widespread or become more of a common technology rather than a brand new cutting edge technology. But that's the question now. It's 2019 at the time of recording. Back when you went through this change in the design world. Mm. Um, Life wasn't moving at the super pace that it is now, Mm. which brings me back to that earlier question about agility that's required. Mm. Uh, Because for the accredited system, we've already talked about how it is a bigger ship to turn around. Uh, That's do we just if someone's listening, instrumental within the vet sector. What should they be thinking about? What should be keeping them up at night? What should they be raising in any management and planning meetings? Yeah, uh, the first thing to say is it is absolutely a live issue and there's already plenty of commentary about the, and you use the term agility, the responsiveness of the accredited VET system to be more nimble to pick up these trends as they occur and are accelerating over time. Um, it is a debate as a former government policy <laughs> officer that we started at least 10, 20 years ago, and the debate rages still. Uh, I could point out, though, that the recent Commonwealth Review, called the Joyce Review, picked up on that very issue, that, uh, in essence, that the system's too slow to respond to the development and is not responsive enough to industry needs, and that whole policy development is already occurring as we speak. 
It has arguably been a continuous process, but I think the need and the driver for that is starting to accelerate. In our research, there is just no there is no doubt that industry is demanding and requesting more agility from the accredited vet system. Hmm. Yeah, and sometimes they may turn to the unaccredited system to to achieve that. Yeah. And is, I imagine this is why a hybrid approach is being taken, because while we wait for the accredited system to, to catch up, we need to fill gaps as employers, and that's where these off-the-shelf uh, or even bespoke uh, unaccredited training feels, feels the immediate need. Oh, absolutely, mm. and a business will always mm. s- you know, do what it needs to do to be able to get uh, competitive in the marketplace. I guess one of the things that I think is of enduring value, though, for staying within the broad church of an accredited system is a degree of safety uh, or confidence in the choices you're making. If I just reflect as I was choosing where to do my design thinking, the, the gamut spread from free courses of which I was highly skeptical, uh, to some even more expensive than the one I chose. And I was really floundering as to how I made my decision. In the end, it was the mark of RMIT. I thought, well, you know, they're not going to let something go through without at least ticking some boxes. So apply that to the vet sector. Um, How does that play in to employers looking at some sort of checklist to determine what training decisions to make? What criteria would you put before them? It's, it's a really good question because the higher education system is predicated on reputation. People make their choices to do a degree at a certain institution because of its reputation and ranking of the institution. It is arguably not applicable in the vocational education sector. You don't typically have a ranking system that absolutely says this provider is deemed to be reputationally better or worse than that provider. It's a far more homogenous appreciation of that. Why? Um, I think it's just the way it's always been. Remembering that the vet market uh, used to be just TAFE. If we went back 30 years, there was only one show in town. There's been a deliberate policy strategy to you know, have a market for VET by introducing a lot of private provision. We now have well over 4,000 registered tra- training organisations. Right. But compare that to 150 higher education providers and 40 universities. Far more difficult to discriminate between providers than you are in the university sector. Plus a culture, I think, of, of just not having that as part of the ranking system. Right, so, so back to some criteria for an employer. What sort of things should they be looking for to try and determine who of the 4,000-odd uh, vet sector providers they might choose from? Are there a couple of go-to questions you would want them to be addressing? Yeah, look, I think it actually there is some parallels with the study because flexibility and cost are absolute drivers for any business, for any product for that matter. Um, and that came up in the study anyway. So that'll be one thing. You're talking about discriminating on quality, not not so easy. Um, what I would say though, is the vulnerability of businesses is less than for an individual when they're choosing a training provider. They know what they want for their staff. They know whether that service is being provided uh, as well as it can be or not, and they'll make those accountable. They'll make that RTO accountable for it. An individual, particularly a school leaver, coming out probably has nothing to compare it to, no. and it's very difficult for them to discriminate whether they're getting a good service or not. In terms of uh, yeah, choosing uh, training providers, it <clears throat> was really the ability of to tailor the training to the employer's needs 
That was one of their main reasons for choosing them. And uh, the flexibility and timing in the provision. So they, presumably they could come and do it when the employer is suitable for the workforce to be off the job or the workers to be off the job, etc. Right. That is like the old saying, why are you calling yourself a handyman? Well, I live around the corner. <laughs> uh, it plays into it from yeah. that meeting those flexible needs, let alone the accreditation level. Yeah. Um, we have the next report, the next survey results coming out soon, I believe. At the time of recording, it's about a couple of months away, October 2019, we're expecting them. Have you had a peep inside, Ian? Is there anything that you've seen or can suggest we might see in the results? Uh, I haven't had a peep, I'm afraid, no, because they're not available yet. But um, we do know, as you've mentioned at the start of uh, this podcast, so the percentage of employers using unaccredited training is 50% or or 54%, but it's been around that 50% mark in the last sort of 10 years or so. So it'd be interesting to keep an eye on that figure to see if it's uh, moving up or down, particularly with the changes in the economy and the challenges of Industry 4.0 and et cetera. Um, And we also noticed an increasing trend over the past few years for employers to use unaccredited training to meet highly specific training needs. So it'd be interesting to see if that trend continues on to see if that is something that's driving the use of unaccredited training. Yeah, I think following on from what Ian said, uh, it's possibly a canary in the coal mine about we're telling ourselves that the future of work is changing and the requirements for the job are changing. Can this give us an indicator that that is in fact the case? Mm. And and how are these uh, data points collected for these surveys? How do you get this information? The survey of employers and use of the VET system is mainly designed to collect employers' use and views of the VET system, but it does also collect uh, unaccredited training. It's a survey of, uh, I think they survey around about 8,000, 9,000 employers, uh, and then they are weighted to benchmarks in the uh, Australian Bureau of Statistics Business Register mm. to be reflected of the enti- entire population. Yeah. Mm. So uh, we'll be staying up late on the night that they're uh, <laughs> released. Is that the sort of thing that happens within the uh, vocational education sector? Oh, we do take a keen interest in the new results. We certainly do. They're our our mission is to tell a story, and you've asked for what that story might look like. Ian speculated on what that story might look like, and then you'll have to wait for the story now. <laughs> uh, gentlemen, thanks very much. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Vocational Voices is produced by NCVER on behalf of the Australian Government and State and Territory Governments, with funding provided through the Australian Government, Department of Employment, Skills, Small and Family Business. For more information, please visit ncver.edu.au.